Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the Story Story Night family where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme. I'm artistic director Jody Eichelberger. It's a mad, mad world with a summer of themes inspired by Alice in Wonderland, continuing with Drink Me, recorded live at the Visual Arts Collective in Garden City, Idaho, with featured storytellers Flint Weiser and DJ Red, hosted by Minerva Jane. Follow the White Rabbit, it's story time. Please welcome to the stage, Flint Weiser. I, uh, I tell stories all the time. I just don't usually use words. I'm an artist, a designer, and a maker. I'm responsible for the work you see on the walls, and I didn't know she was going to say that, so I'm just <laughs> repeating my spiel. Um, in my piece, Curiouser and Curiouser, I depict the, the uh, events of the theme uh, for tonight's stories. In it, Alice has fallen down the rabbit hole, and she finds herself in a long hallway filled with doors. Um, while examining those doors, she discovers a glass table, and on that glass table is a key. And she goes to each door trying to figure out which uh, door is unlocked by that key. Eventually, she finds the door, and it's behind a curtain, and uh, it's a tiny door. She can't fit through that space, so she returns to the glass table, and she takes a drink. She finds a flask, and on the flask is a label that says, drink me. So she drinks that down, and she begins to shrink. Now, shrinking is supposed to solve her problems, but what it actually does is start a new adventure. Now, I would like to tell you about my work tonight um, and, and about the theme and why I chose it. And in order to do that, I have to tell you about a particularly difficult um, part or thing that happened to me in my life. Um, it starts with a, a, a trip to the emergency room uh, and a hospital in Brooklyn, New York. After two hours, they gave me a uh, baby aspirin and a thimble full of water to wash it down. My pain level is an eight. Uh, I've had kidney stones. Those are my 10. The pain is in my back. It's uh, in the middle, just to the left of my spine. And when it gets bad, it migrates from my chest uh, down to my arm and up to my jaw. The, coming in with back pain, uh, they think that I'm a junkie, but uh, my wife is there and she's pregnant and she's a nurse and eventually they give me a shot of morphine. And I can feel the relief as it flows up my arm and across my chest and down to my toes and up to my nose and I feel quite a bit better. <laughs> I hail the taxi and we go home and uh, I make an appointment with my doctor which led to appointments for tests. Um, in, in a nuclear stress test, they're looking, trying to uh, determine the blood flow occurring within the veins and arteries of your heart. Um, uh, uh, an elderly lady in a tiny locker room uh, shaves uh, my chest in areas. She's using a disposable razor, which is of exceptionally poor quality, and it takes <laughs> off uh, not only the hair, but also the top layers of skin. Uh, she then informs me that she's going to need to roughen up the skin a bit uh, to make, the make sure the electrodes really stick. I look like a sweater. So she, uh, she takes out some actual sandpaper and begins to abrade my patches. She attaches a tangled ball of electrodes to me and, and ushers me to the testing area. Now, um, 
they stick an IV in my arm before they start the test, and, and uh, shortly thereafter, I'm running as fast as I can. My heart is struggling to keep up with the pace, and I'm not, uh, it's not going fast enough for them to validate their test. So um, I'm running, I'm holding onto the safety handhold for dear life, and the nurse is trying to uh, shove a needle into the flaccid IV, barely dangling from my arm. Coincidentally, the one thing they didn't shave in a braid. He uh, tells me to both uh, run faster and stay still so he can inject me with the radioactive serum. <laughs> now, the serum is a clear, slightly yellowish color, not at all the neon uh, uh, toxic sludge you might imagine, and uh, uh, although the, the uh, syringe is encased in kind of this ominous metal jacket. After my ordeal, I'm led to a machine uh, which can see the radioactive tracer as it moves through my bloodstream. Then I'm, I'm ushered into a room that's very cold and which is blaring a, a news channel. I, I have to uh, pee in a uh, separate bathroom because I now produce uh, hazardous waste. <laughs> I'm there for hours uh, with a nurse sporadically checking on me. Eventually, I'm allowed to get dressed and to leave. And as I'm leaving, a large group of people approach me. They want to talk to me about my scan. Now, I'm very confused because I'm supposed to meet uh, up with my doctor uh, next week for the results. Uh, we wedge into a tiny examination room. Uh, the lights are off so we can better view the scans. Although, to be honest, it was on a monitor, so I'm not sure why we were sitting in the dark. <laughs> um, evidently, I'd had a heart attack when I went to that ER. They hadn't caught it because they didn't look for a specific enzyme in my bloodstream. It's kind of the heart's distress signal. Um, they informed me that I'm going to need to, uh, I'm going to need to go and check into the ER. Um, that I'm going to be hospitalized immediately. Now I'm devastated by this news. I'm afraid that I will never get to meet my unborn son, and, and I'm terrified of the prospects of open-heart surgery. Um, eventually, uh, later on the cardiac ward, um, my isolation intensifies because I'm not allowed to uh, hug my wife or hold her hand. Um, they're afraid that I'll damage the fetus, and I'm just still too radioactive. Eventually, I'd, I'd have uh, the open-heart surgery, uh, triple bypass. They would uh, cut my sternum in half. They would spread my ribs. They would harvest veins from my arm, my thigh, and my chest. They told me I'd have small scars after the operation was done, which was not at all the case. Um, it took a long time to recover, and uh, my scars were red and angry for years after. Now, uh, when a young person has a heart attack, uh, they usually die. And the reason why, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive, but when you've lived with heart disease long enough, uh, your body tries to compensate for that fact. And so your arteries will broaden. Uh, it, you'll even grow new arteries to those places of the heart that aren't being given enough blood. So when old, relatively old people, um, have a heart attack, they often are okay. Uh, but when a young person has a heart attack, they don't have that infrastructure built in, and so uh, blood flow ceases, and that part of the heart dies. Now, I was lucky. I uh, survived my heart attack. I got to meet my son, and uh, only a small portion on the back bottom part of my heart um, was damaged. My... Uh, 
my best friend wasn't so lucky. He passed away in the middle of the night um, uh, a few years uh, after I'd had mine. He was my friend for over 25 years. We, uh, our friendship was based in a love of uh, games and of the outdoors. Um, he signed my marriage certificate. You know, he was very important to me and to just about everyone uh, whose life he entered. Now, my pain and my trauma from my surgery, that transformed into guilt. Guilt because I'd survived when my friend had not. And I have this guilt uh, every time I'm around our other shared friends. Excuse me. I was notified that I'd have the show at VAC about a week before Tim died. And so um, because of their proximity in time or just because of the depth of my grief, um, I linked the two together. And so I would think about the work I had to do for this show, and I'd end up thinking about my friend. I knew that I needed to decouple the two events. And so the first thing I did was anything that was in process when Tim passed away, I scrapped. I set aside about a half of a show's worth of work. Um, next, I, I tried to um, I tried to find some way of getting completely lost in it, right? Like something that I could completely lose myself into. Now, when I was a child, that meant stories. So I looked at you know I would uh, use books and magazines, uh, comics, and mythology to shrink from reality. Uh, and you know, as an adult, I've never developed any better coping mechanisms. And so, um, once again, I, uh, I I went back to that. I recalled uh, seeing an artist uh, in uh, in Portland. This was years before any of the story takes place. And uh, but he was doing this thing where he was depicting uh, pieces out of Gravity's Rainbow, which is a Thomas Pynchon novel, and not a particularly good one. But uh, the important thing was that he had some sort of relationship to the author that was disconnected from me, the viewer, right? And so it was like this translation that was occurring. And I thought that was quite a neat idea. I'd also always been fascinated with dioramas and puppets and animatrons, but I never allowed myself to work within that genre because my previous work had its basis in uh, abstraction and conceptual art. So now I felt like I was armed with the methodology and I could, I could continue on. Um, I just needed to find the right story, and then all of my problems would shut up like a telescope. At first, I thought of uh, uh, Lorca's Once Five Years Pass, but it's pretty obscure and uh, kind of pretentious. So uh, then I thought maybe Don Quixote. Now, here's a novel I deeply love and a lot of people love, and it has great allusions to today, but um, and maybe have a little too many political illusions. And I really wanted my audience to be able to uh, disappear from their problems the same way as I was trying to disappear from mine. Uh, I chose Lewis Carroll's Alice books after reading a series of fables and nonsense poems to my son. Uh, Lewis Carroll is uh, one of the first and probably the greatest uh, nonsense writers. He would kind of explore the routes that Dr. Seuss later would would open up into vast highways. Um, after my surgery, after my illness, my surgery, my recovery, I quit working on art. At first it was because it was too physically painful and then um, you know, I was moving my life from Brooklyn back to Nampa. Um, I had a small child, I needed to remodel a house. 
Uh, but if I'm honest, it was because I was different. And Tim's death, it allowed me to understand that. Um, and it was, I was only able to return to making art by accepting it, by really drinking it in, uh, allowing myself to change and my work to change with it. Um, as Alice says to the caterpillar, it's no use going back to yesterday. I was a different person then. Thank you. Keeping with the Lewis and Carroll theme, please enjoy the Corvids with the Jabberwocky time. So now, good people, the Sport of Crows and One Good Eye Productions brings to you a play in several short but unnatural acts. Was brillig, and the slithy toves did jive, gimble in the wave. Oh, mimsy were the borrow groves, and the mome rats again. My son, the, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch, beware the jump, jump, bird and shun the frothy-ass bandersnatch. Corporal sword in hand. Long time the maxim bow he sought. Till rested he by the tum tum tree and stood a while in thought. He stood, the Jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tallgy wood and burbled as he came.
One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snap. He left it dead, and with its head, he went galoomfing back. in the wave. Oh, Mimsy with the bar groves and the moon rats out game. Here he is. Let's hear it for DJ Red. So, growing up, I always dreamed of drinking a potion that would shrink me because for the first two decades of my life, the staple of my identity was the fat kid with glasses. I was into movies and comic books and history. I was this chunky 11-year-old sitting around eating pie and watching Taxi Driver. By the time that I was 18, I reached about 320 pounds. Bullies weren't a problem though because I was popular it seems. It was funny I guess. I was elected class clown, high school homecoming king, and I was a speech champion. People made jokes all the time but it was all in good fun. Girls on the other hand, they were non-existent. I was raised in a small town. I was raised Catholic which we all know isn't the most sex positive of religions and I went to an all-male Jesuit high school. Yet, I dreamed about women all the time. And I dreamed about being the man that they would want, being the hero. But as a kid, those were just dreams. And then one day, something changed. It was high school PE class, and I was 15. And we were learning how to weightlift. And I was asked to demonstrate the leg curl machine. And I get up there, and I crank out 10 reps in front of the class, no problem. And the class is impressed because I lifted the entire stack of weight like it was nothing. And I felt good. And that started my passion for fitness because no matter whether or not I was depressed, no matter whether or not I was sad, it didn't matter. If I hit the gym, it always made me feel better. 
So healthy living became my antidepressant rather than a chore. So a few years later, I head out to Iowa City, the University of Iowa, which is a party school. It's a good time. And even though I lost a little bit of weight and I was in a little bit of better shape, I still was the funny fat kid. I was in a fraternity. I volunteered. I was a radio DJ, which is where DJ Red comes from. With your smooth talking sounds, 89.7. <laughs> but I make people laugh. It's, the cycle repeats itself like it did in high school. One summer, my junior year, I leave to go to work for home, and I get a job in landscaping. So all I do for that summer is work outside, hit the gym, drink water, do yoga, eat healthy. It's some of the cleanest living that I've ever done, and my weight loss accelerates. I must have lost 60 pounds this summer. And at the end of it, my friend takes me shopping for some new clothes and a haircut. And here I am standing in front of this three-way mirror and I'm a different person. It's like something out of a David Lynch film or a Dostoevsky novel, it's, it's bizarre. I was tan, I was lean, my teeth were white, I had muscles. And my face was no longer the gregarious, chubby facade that I always had. I now looked serious. So I'm excited to go back to Iowa City and show all of my friends this new look that I have. And when I get there, I'm walking down the street, and I'm walking through the gym, and everybody's giving me looks, yet some guys are looking at me like they're intimidated. Some guys are looking at me like they're sizing me up. And I make jokes like I always did before in class, yet no one is laughing. It was almost as though before the summer I was Chris Farley, and then I come back as Chris Hemsworth, so here I am as Thor, attempting to play Tommy Boy, and it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So there is this spot, though, called the Deadwood. It's sort of this artistic, hipster, bohemian crowd, and it's where I hung out with all the time. It's where my friends were. Everyone who knew me before this transformative summer was there, and I was excited to see them. Yet when I started hanging out there, dressed in a different way and looking the way that I do, Everybody gave me these standoffish looks, like I was some stranger that they didn't recognize. And I didn't feel welcome. I started hearing derogatory comments set in a passive-aggressive manner my way about me being a frat boy, a jock, a meathead. I didn't care for that particularly because these came from people who I thought were my friends. And the women of the Deadwood were the ones who I was the most excited to see because I had crushes on all of them and they knew me before my transformation. But yet when I started talking to them, they would look away or they would look down. Some would even scowl at me. They seemed to give this sort of nonverbal vibe of, who's this guy and why is he talking to me? It was, I thought this would be easier, but I'm sitting out in the patio and my friend Katie comes out and I ask her, what's going on with all these ladies who I thought I was cool with? And she explains to me, I'll never forget this, she said, Red, honey, last year you were fat and all those ladies put you in the friend zone. Now you look like you do and they all want to sleep with you and they don't know how to deal with it. So there is some positive attention from this. There's 
second looks and there's compliments. And I, I don't take the compliments well. I never took the compliments well because, um, you know, I know I'm a long ways away from a 10 and I get just as insecure as everyone else. I look in the mirror, it looks like me. And um, it's strange when you start hearing words describing you that you never associated with yourself before. And also the biggest frustration is the fact that now I have absolutely no idea what to do when a woman expresses interest because women tend to think that they're much more direct with their signals than what they actually are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't fucking fight me on this. Yes, yes. Um, so navigating this world, it's, it's tricky, it's risky, and I, I have no idea what to do. And, and it pisses me off because there's nobody out there really teaching us how to do this. You kind of just have to figure this out on your own. I hope to change that one day, but that's for a TED Talk. <laughs> Christmas rolls around, though, and I'm walking in this beautiful night. It's gentle snow. It's silent, it's gorgeous lights out, but yet I'm the most miserable I've ever been in my life. Fuck everyone. Because I just spent the past few years putting myself through hell. And I worked so hard. And now I'm lonelier than I've ever been. Everywhere where I go, people misjudge me. And I don't know where I belong. It's a pretty hard thing to go through at an age where you you're already confused about everything. Over time, though, I have grown to appreciate the benefits of my transformation. I love feeling strong and fit and masculine, and I love the fact that I'm able to date beautiful women. Shout out to you, Beth. <laughs> and I love surprising people in conversation, because when people meet me, they think I'm this intense guy who should be coaching high school football. So it genuinely shocks people when I talk to them about Louis Bunuel films, or panpsychism, or I speak Italian, or teach a Pilates class. I hear all the time, Red, you're not who I expected you to be, and you're much more interesting than I thought. Ladies and gentlemen, I drank a metaphorical potion that literally changed how I look. And I thought that my problems would disappear, but they didn't. They, my life became more difficult and lonely. And that's what I learned is that problems, uh, they don't stop, they just change into something else when you change. And the thing that I face nowadays that's the hardest for me is that my first impression doesn't do a good job of communicating who I actually am. As a result, connection with people is much, much harder to attain. It's, it's not an easy feeling to make people laugh your whole life and then wake up and you can't do that anymore. And you find that some people are afraid of you. And I hate that because connection means everything to me, everything. And so I wouldn't change anything about the trajectory of my life, because I'm proud of what I've done. But 
there are times where I still miss those days where I was that sensitive, nerdy, funny, fat kid because despite how I look, that's who I actually am. And at least back during those days, people could see it clearly. Such is life. So on that note, I'll take a pretzel penis and get <laughs> the show on the road. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our season sponsor, Over 19 Adult Shop, and the Drink Me Show sponsor, Acme Bake Shop. The Story Story Late Night theme song is by Ned Evett, with podcast production by Stephen Baldessari, featuring live music from The Corvids. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and YouTube at Story Story Night. You can submit to be a featured storyteller by writing story at storystorynight.org find our full archive of podcasts at soundcloud.com slash storystorynight. 